Welcome to episode 14 of the Welding Codex. This is a podcast for those that want to learn more about the technical side of welding. Welding codes, heat treatment, welding defects, metallurgy, and all the subjects your high school welding instructor didn't have time to cover. In this episode, welding engineers and CWIs Peter Kinney and Gary Pace continue their review of AWS D1.1, Structural Welding Code Steel. This episode covers Clause 6, Part A, General Requirements, Part B, Contractor Responsibilities, and we will start in on Part C, Acceptance Criteria. Clause 6 is Inspection. This is a cornerstone of the AWS D1.1 Structural Steel Code. And as such, it has a lot of material to cover, so it'll take Pete and I a few episodes to cover the material. Anyhow, thanks for joining us. Note, Pete and Gary bounce back and forth between Code Editions 2015 and 2020 during the course of this episode, so we apologize beforehand if the podcast gets a little off track. Before going on, time for the advertisements. If you're on a budget and are looking for an affordable online training course for the AWS Certified Welding Inspector Exam, visit train-eng.com, train-eng.com, like T-R-A-I-N dash minus sign E-N-G.com. And check out the online courses for Part A, General Knowledge, and Part B, Hands-On Inspection, train-eng.com. Com also has some buffet-style options on the CWI review course. If you only want to take one or two chapters um, in that online course, we got it set up like that. That's an option. They also have a CWI question bonanza. So if you're pretty solid with the material and you just want to do practice questions, the CWI question bonanza might be the avenue you're looking for. If you like what we're doing here, Feel free to make a PayPal donation on my website, texasweldingengineering.com. Also check out my YouTube channel. The material posted on that platform has been there for quite a while, but kind of similar but different. Anyways, welcome to the Welding Codex. Welcome to the Welding Codex with Peter Kinney and Gary Pace, welding engineers. This episode, we're going to start through the brutal slog that is going to be Clause 6, inspection, or Clause 8 in 2020, inspection. So we're going to grind through this one and, you know, beat this dead horse like we always do. <laughs> Strap in and enjoy. Okay, so Part A, we got general requirements. 6.1, the scope. Clause 6 contains all of the requirements for the inspector's qualifications and responsibilities, acceptance criteria for discontinuities, and procedures for NDE. Okay, Pete, you were talking off the air with me earlier, 6.1.1. You want to run with that one? Sure. So this one, um, whenever you're bidding a job or you're making up the contract for uh, bidders to bid on, anything besides visual has to be stipulated. The, the only thing required by this code is visual. All welds have to be inspected. So if you want certain welds to be mag particle tested or PT tested or we need the UT or RT, all the, all the full pen welds, that has to be listed in here for, for the bidder. Um, that's, it's, not, it's not invoked. That's the main thing I want everyone to know is anything beyond visual has to be in the contract. 
So any other inspection criteria, MT, PT, any of that, it's got to be designated by the engineer and it's got to be in the contract. They can't come back after the fact and say, yeah, we want MT here. Well, no, you guys didn't throw it in. This is, this is what we've got. 612 is inspection and contract stipulations. So for the purpose of this code, fabrication, erection inspection and testing, and verification inspection and testing shall be separate functions. That we're going to get into a couple of different contexts of what that means here in a couple of paragraphs. So 6121 is contractor's inspection, which is different than verification inspection. Contractor's inspection. This type of inspection and test shall be performed as necessary prior to assembly, during assembly, during welding and after welding to ensure that materials and workmanship meet the requirements of the contract documents. Fabrication, erection, inspection, and testing shall be the responsibilities of the contractor unless otherwise provided in the contract documents. What did that just tell us, Pete? Well, basically uh, it's saying is the contractor's responsible for it. During fabrication, they have to make sure that whatever testing is invoked by the code and or contract or specific other specifications that they have to meet it on an ongoing basis. That's basically the long and the short of that one. Right. And it's like it says, the the contractor, you need to be there during assembly, welding, and after welding to make sure that this thing meets the requirements of the contract document. So then we've got verification inspection. What's another name for that, Gary? What's that? Verification inspection. Third party inspection? Third party, that's right. Most people don't really know about it as the verification inspection. It's like, oh, that, thar- that third party person. That's, that's normally how I've always heard it referred to. Very rarely as verification inspection. Right. And that's, that's a big one. Like you say, third party inspection is verification inspection. That's the one that gets thrown out. Um, so our third party or verification inspection is covered in 6122. This type of inspection and testing shall be performed and their results reported to the owner and contractor in a timely manner to avoid delays in the work. Verification, inspection, and testing are the prerogatives of the owner who may perform this function or when provided in a contract wave uh, independent verification or stipulate that both inspection and verification shall be performed by the contractor. So it depends on what you've got going on. Um, Pete and I crossed paths and worked together down here in Houston. Then usually verification inspection is done by a third party so that the contractor can't say, yep, we got it done. Usually there's a third party that comes in and looks at it and says, yep, nope, nah, you guys need to go redo this. Uh, correct. And, and depending on the scope of the job and who the client is, some clients had more inspectors or less inspectors or they may do it as just certain hold points. Um, there's, there's many ways to, uh, to have that function performed. Okay. So then we've got definition 613, definition of inspector categories. So you've got the contractor's inspector, the verification inspector, and then you've just got inspectors. I'm not going to read through all three of these, but the contractor's inspector, that is the person that works for the contractor. That's the guy in your QA department that is making your life miserable by making you follow the drawings to the utmost or whatever. The verification inspector is the third party inspector. He's going to come in 
from some outside organization, DNV or Fred's barbecue and inspection or whatever. They're going to come in, look at the drawings and say, yep, make sure everything's good. All the fillet welds look good. Everything is just fantastic. And then inspector, sometimes in 6133, you've got them both. Uh, they can both be one depending on what you're making, who you're making it for, and how you're making it. Thoughts, Pete? Yeah, so uh, as you said, the verification inspector is is normally a third-party company. Uh, it, it could be uh, an employee, though, of either the owner or the engineering firm. So it doesn't always have to be a, uh, an independent company, but often it is. And uh, you're right, the term inspector is just basically someone who goes in and inspects something. That there's no expanding on it when that's just a general word. So the, the next one we got there, Gary, is qualification of inspection personnel. And I think there's been a little bit of changes between, uh, between the two codes here. On the, the 2020 version, uh, it lists out I mean, that it all has to be in the contract documents, which I think is it, the verbiage has changed, but it's the same meaning is there. But uh, going for the qualifications, and this is basically what the, the welding inspector, of how the, they themselves are, are qualified. And there's five... Uh, uh, principal ways. Uh, the first one is to be an AWS CWI or senior CWI. Number two is be the Canadian version uh, with a level two or level three uh, welding inspector. The third is in, in conformance with uh, AWS document called B5.1, which is specification of welding inspectors. This is uh, and one thing I left out on all of these, it's current or previous certification in these. And the, the B5.1 is, that can be an in-house certification. The, the, the two previously are done by an outside, outside agency. Number three is, is, a, is it an internal uh, certification. Number four is current or previous qualification, the ASNT TC1A uh, level two. And this is a, a qualification document for non-destructive testing uh, personnel. And this also is a internal type uh, certification. A lot of times you may hear someone talk about, hey, we got to update our written practice or what does our written practice say about it? That's mainly driven by ASNT, SNT, TC1A. There, there are some other ones out there uh, that also have written practices. Uh, CP189 is a more stringent version of, uh, of the SNT, TC1A ver uh, document. But like I said, those are all internal, uh, or those two are internal. Number five is different than, than the other ones. An individual who by training experience or both in metal fabrications, inspecting and testing is competent to, to perform inspection of the work. This is a kind of a big gray point on who is considering what competent or experienced. Uh, I, I have seen this uh, fifth card played before and depending on what you're dealing with will depend upon how much you need to back up that uh, those to, to meet those requirements there. In all having current certifications either by AWS or by the, the Canadian um, is really easy. No, 
no qualms there. The other two are internal. People may want to read your written practice to see what it contains to make sure that you can't just be a forklift driver on one day and then all of a sudden become an inspector the next. And number five, I would say you really need to have your ducks in a row if you're going to play that card. Yeah, and see, when I worked for um, an outfit and we did some stuff out at the vitrification plant at the Hanford Nuclear Site, we were all an individual who by training or experience or both, they played that card. And But it was a DOE site, so our level three gave us a visual inspection test, and we had, you had to have a NDE um, resume. Okay, where had you worked? What qualifications had you had? Had you had some, had you had VT certs before? Had you had MT certs? Have you had, you know, a certain, I think they counted a lot of mine because I was a, had a degree in welding engineering so that gave me a bunch of hours and then they gave me a level two test and so they really had it backed up and that's what pete's talking about is when you know by training or individual it wasn't them just saying pulling me off a forklift it was like no okay he's one of our welding engineers he's gonna have level two certs here's his qualifications okay he's got a bachelor's degree in engine welding engineering he's done this 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 and this he's got this and he then he passed this test you know so that's what pete was talking about if you're going to go that route you got to have some paperwork you can't just scribble it on the bar, back of a bar napkin correct and contracts can also change this verbiage as well as we've talked about many times before the engineer can basically say you have to be current and you only have to you have to be a one or in uh, meet the requirements of one or the requirements of two. They can uh, they can change all this, or they could also throw in uh, there's an alternate inspector qualification. Um, like let's say the the British version is called CSWIP, uh, which is very comparable to the AWS CWI um, version, and so they could allow that in. So the alternative inspector qualifications could be another outside type uh, in inspector qualification program. I mean, there's, they exist in China, they exist in Europe. So that's, that's a whole other avenue. But if you want to have it, it, it really needs to be specified. Uh, the insistent inspector is, is very similar to the inspector for its qualifications. It, it still ha it has five versions. Um, but what they allow, the first one is current or previous to the assistant uh, welding ins inspector, the CAWI. That's how you can get in there. With number two, uh, current or previous for the Canadian level, uh, level one inspector is allowed. Uh, number three is an associate inspector according to the AWS B5.1. Uh, four is the same. It's a level one in ASNT TC1A. Oh, they also have in here uh, uh, CP189, or as a level one. And then number five, an individual is specified by training experience to perform the function. So the way this would kind of change it is, let's take our example of our person that was on a forklift on Monday. And they're like, hey, we need an, ins we, we need an assistant inspector. Hey, for Mr. Forklift Driver, you're going to be promoted to be an assistant inspector. And you're going to work with our inspector to learn how to perform certain functions and we'll train you up to do it. That would be a very logical progression from moving from uh, 
like either welding or burning or some some other operation into the inspection world without having any of these other certifications. Uh, that's more for how the the, the progression of movement from uh, one uh, one one uh, operation to the inspection world. Right, and as an ins- assistant inspector, you could that like you say, there's a number of different ways. If you had your program set up and said, all right, we're going to take forklift drivers, janitors, and welders, or whoever, and they're going to, our program says, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this. We're going to have them work 50 hours or 100 hours or whatever number of hours, and they're going to have to take a class, and they're going to have to pass a test, and or a certain number of tests and whatnot, and then we'll give them their paperwork that says they're uh, an inspector or whatever. But you should have it mapped out and definitely have some criteria involved and follow some kind of written program and have some testing involved in there. And the ASNT TC1A lays out your, for visual testing, that might be a good starting point. And there's, there's some materials out there that you could find that, you know, could help you put something together if that was the route you were going to go. Exactly. Um, moving on to the next one is your eye examination. And basically, anyone doing, any of the inspectors, inspectors, assistant inspectors, anyone performing NDT, so that's if you're doing mag particle, dye penetrant, you're doing UT, RT, any of those folks, you need to have an eye, uh, an eye exam. And you can do it either like you don't have to if if you don't wear glasses well you can take it but if you do wear glasses it's perfectly fine to take it with your glasses on and you have to have it at least in one eye i i will be honest i've never i don't think i've met an inspector that only used had one eye but it does allow you to have one eye to to meet the eye inspection uh, examination you have to have a jager two at a distance of 12 inches or an equivalent test is determined by an ophthalmic medical personnel. There, this is because there's other tests that may also work that would be acceptable for this. And you have to do it every three years or less. Most places I've ever dealt with require it every year. So that's you. You just go in there and you give you go to the eye doctor, get your glasses, whatever. I always have them sign mine off when I go get my glasses every other year or whatever the hell it is and have them knock that out and get my CWI uh, visual acuity, whatever the hell it is, dialed in and send that paperwork in. So it's the same thing. Thanks for you you reminded me is I just use that form that you whenever you submit your, for your CWI. That's the one I just use over and over again. It's easily documented. Everyone's used to seeing it. Um, I will say just so everyone knows that ASNT and I believe requires a Jager one or maybe it's ASME. So if you're going in there and you play in both worlds, have them do both. So where are we going next? Verification authority on mine, 6145. The engineer shall have the authority to verify the qualification of inspectors. This gets back to, remember, episodes ago we were talking about the engineer having the superpowers. Well, the engineer has the authority to verify the qualification of the inspectors. If he goes, he, she goes through there and looks at the inspectors and says, dude, dude's a forklift driver. Dude's got no training. You have not submitted sufficient evidence that this person has a clue as to what they're looking at 
they can kick it. Nope, this guy's not looking at our welds. You need to find somebody else. That's one of the um, authorities or superpowers of the engineer. Correct. Uh, the 2020 version has changed a little more in placement in the, where it's uh, more speaking about the terms of effectiveness and inspector responsibilities are moved around, but it's basically the same. Okay, so we got 615 inspector responsibility. Um, the inspector shall ascertain that all fabrication and erection by welding is performed in conformance with the requirements of the contract documents. Basically, the inspector's job is to go in there and make sure everything was put together. It said to splash holy water on it and do a dance around the, the component before you bolt it together or whatever. By God, you better be doing that. So verbatim compliance. So it's the inspector's responsibility to make sure that that is done. It's not somebody else's. That's the inspector's job. Correct. And most inspectors that I have ever run across, they take this job very seriously. And, you know, like pit bulls almost or something, you know, very zealous in their approach to the job. So um, items to be furnished to the inspector. Okay, here's what you should, you know, you got the third party inspector or your inspector, any inspector. The inspector shall be furnished complete detailed drawings showing the size, length, type, and location of all welds to be made. The inspector shall also be furnished the portion of the contract documents that describes materials and quality requirements for the products to be fabricated, erected, or both. You want to talk about this one, Pete? Yeah, this is actually uh, one that really gets kind of messed up a lot. And I always like to have a prefab meeting to make sure everyone was on the same page because sometimes I'd have an inspector trying to apply something out of the client's uh, specification, and that's been superseded by other contract documents, other either exceptions or or whatnot, and the inspector didn't know anything about it. It's like, hold on, you're supposed to paint this blue, and you're painting it red, and it's like, well, that's because of this right over here, or there may have been a change in client spec may have said no flux processes are allowed, and are we have an exception to that, and the inspector doesn't even know, so he's or she's kind of straggling around like, hold on, you're doing this wrong to the spec, but make sure that all the inspection folks know have the most current of exceptions specs drawings because uh, that that makes their life a lot easier and in turn they won't be flagging things that are perfectly acceptable to the most current revision of whatever other document exists that allows you to make it two feet shorter than the drawing because someone mismeasured in the field and you need to make it two, two foot shorter. The drawings are getting, have been submitted for revision and they're on Rev 3 and you're on Rev 5. So that's, uh, that's real important for them to have everything. And as the contract, if you're the contractor as well, to make sure your own inspectors have it and probably have a conversation with the third party or the client's inspector, hey, do you have all this stuff? Now, if you want to be the one providing it to them or letting making them get it from there, whoever's providing them, that's, uh, that's between you and that, uh, that individual, how do you want to sort that out. 
Right. And a lot of these, uh, if you're a first time listener and just getting into this, a lot of the, a lot of times you can go into these meetings and it can be pretty contentious or adversarial depends on who you're dealing with and where you've been, where you're coming from, what your previous arrangements or um, relationships are with some of the people in the room, but it's just part of the game. And, you know, if you're a newbie inspector getting into this, just realize that a lot of times it's all not hugs and kisses and happiness in there, but sometimes it is just depends on what you're, you're stepping into. So a little off in the weeds there, but um, exactly Gary. No, that that's uh, you're exactly right. So, um, six, seven inspector notification. The inspector shall be notified in advance of the start of operations subject to inspection and verifications. So you, this is just telling you, you can't, you can't tell the inspector, Oh, it's all done, dude. Come look at it. No, a lot. They want to see fit ups. They want to make sure the route goes in. There's a lot of different, maybe hold points, checkpoints. So you can't, you need to notify the inspector beforehand. You can't just throw him a stack of stuff and say, oh, it's painted sitting on the truck. We're ready to go here. So, Exactly. A lot of times, a lot of projects will have something that's called an ITP uh, um, in, inspection test plan. And it'll kind of walk through like notification requirements. Some of these, are, if, you, if there's a full-time inspector present, Probably quite a bit, a little bit more uh, fluid because the person is there all the time, uh, as opposed to someone who's only coming in at certain at certain points of the project. Um, they may require two weeks notification before the start of fabrication, and then a, a week here, or five days, or three days. And that's normally best to hammer all of that out in the prefab meeting to where make sure everyone's on the same page, there's not missed inspections, depending on what kind of inspection it might be or how things can get very painful, cutting things back apart, rewelding things. And that's, uh, this both does not create goodwill, drives up costs un- possibly, potentially unnecessarily. So make sure everyone's on the same page on that. Yeah, it's if if you're a rookie and coming into this zone of the world, there's a lot of times that just things get ugly and it it doesn't take long to escalate and costs and I've been on some stuff where it's just like things have just spiraled out of control pretty quickly and it just gets ugly. Like Pete was saying, you know, you need a need a plan and go from there and generally a meeting to start things off. Um, inspection of materials and equipment. That's six two. Contractors inspector shall ensure that only materials and equipment conforming to the requirements of this code shall be used. You know, that's checking to make sure that they're not using some kind of I don't know, contraband, you know, material that is doesn't meet the code the qualifications of, you know, like a I think what is it, the Chinese steel J two or something. Well, the only there's only three mater, three um, elemental uh, restrictions on that. It's like you can't have this much carbon and this much phosphorus and this much sulfur. The rest is open, open. So it could be three sixteen stainless steel. It could be whatever. So it and a lot of times, you know, when I was working for an outfit, we'd read the WPS is submitted to us, and they try and substitute some of these Chinese steels. Well, this is the equivalent of A36. No, it's not. It's not A36. It might, it could be, but it's not. So 
that's why you got to look at this and say, no, is this the equivalent or that's what this is saying? C- correct. And what I would say uh, is where it says that the contractor's inspector shall ensure them only the materials and equipment. So this is really pushing it on the contractor to make sure that you have the proper material on site. And what I would always suggest is, is you do a receiving inspection. That's how to help catch things before they become a big issue or they timeliness becomes a big issue. So if you're receiving a bunch of I-beams and stacks of angle, go out there, check heat numbers on it. Make sure that matches up with the paperwork you received. Pull a tape measure on it. Hey, these, these beams are supposed to be 40 feet long and they come in at they're a 40-foot random, uh, which could be common, and all of a sudden you got 39.6. Well, how are you going to deal with that? Is that going to require a splice uh, that you didn't originally have on your drawings uh, to, to make it fit up? Do you need to buy more material to make that? Do you need to send this back? But if you take care of it really early, it, it really helps to prevent a scramble right before you're supposed to lift some beams up in the air to make sure that – they were the right thing or feed them into your girder maker or beam line uh, or someone's welded a bunch of attachments to it. And since they all started measuring from one end, they didn't measure the whole thing and a bunch of stuff's already welded on. So uh, a receiving inspection really helps out on everything. A receiving and a shipping inspection, if you're shipping stuff from like your shop to a job site, uh, it helps create a paper trail that you got what you were supposed to get in the proper forms, length, et cetera, and somehow did someone didn't all of a sudden load up a stack of two by two by three sixteenths angle instead of a stack of two by two by quarter. That's what I got to say about that, Gary. Well, and this gets back to, I'm going to kind of go on a little side story here. Um, I had a friend that was a, a, a millwright and he was on a job in West Virginia and I don't know who, what it was about, but Anyways, he kept meticulous notes in a notebook. He kept notebook that was just crazy meticulous. So anyways, he goes back home to Boise, Idaho. This job had just been a grease fire. Anyways, so the lawyers get involved on both sides. Well, one of the lawyers called him and said, hey, can we take a look at your books? We heard you took really good notes because he was like a foreman of the millwrights or whatever. And he's like, no, I won't send them to you, but I will hand deliver them to your office in Washington, D.C. I want two round trip tickets from Boise to D.C. And then I want to stay for a week. Get me a ho- me and my wife a hotel in, you know, pretty close to the, you know, the downtown area or whatever it is there with the walking mall. So we they didn't have to rent a car to go see everything in D.C., right? And uh, so he drops the stuff off at their office. And they photocopy it. Lawsuit goes on. They give him back his notebooks. He flies back to Boise. But the moral of that story is if you have it written down, you're going to win. I always have, you know, if I'm out on a job as an inspector or a lot of times as an engineer, I write it down. I have a notebook of what I'm looking at, what job, what drawing numbers, all that kind of stuff. And with cell phones, take some pictures. Take some pictures. Oh, here it is. Pull a tape on it. It's too short. You guys sent it to us too short. This is what we got going on. So, you know, a lot of this is if you're going to be doing the inspection, it's documentation, paperwork, and just bookkeeping, a lot of bookkeeping. And, you know, these notebooks, any of those notebooks are admissible in court. And the 
when I've been on jobs where things I, I knew they were getting uglier and uglier, I, that's, I kept more and more, not that I didn't take good notes, but they got much better if it was going into a, a fecal matter throwing contest zone of the universe. So yeah, exactly. That's and what, this is where a good part of where you use the assistant inspector where you don't, you don't need, uh, let's say the the full-time inspector or like a high-powered CWI kind of guy or gal pulling a tape measure on everything being received at the shop. Delegation of work and have assistant inspectors monitoring mill numbers coming in, pulling tape measures on, on stuff. That's a good division of labor and using right people at the right places. And if you have somebody in your shop or whatever that is uh, does paperwork pretty well, whether they used to work in a medical office or they whatever, somebody that is really good at paperwork, you know, a lot of times having them track things for you too, that can be, like he says, division of division of labor. Inspection of WPS is a 6.3. So this is where Pete and I have played in this one a lot. Where you maybe you're going to have to dig through as a as a weld inspector, you're going to have to dig through the WPSs. Six three one is pre-qualified WPSs. The contractors and inspectors shall ensure that all pre-qualified WPSs to be used for the work conform with the requirements as a clause three five and nine and the contract documents. That's telling you, you know, as an inspector, you got to dig through before anybody strikes an arc. You got to dig through that pre-qualified WPS and make sure that it stand that it holds water comments Pete yeah that's um, like I said on a, some projects you get all these in let's say inspected ahead of time and approved by someone else other times it's the inspector when they're first showing up on the job site for the contractor I would really prefer to have everything all my paperwork signed off ahead of time as opposed to the first day, I got 10 welders there ready to go. I got some fitters. I got some helpers. And there's something wrong with my paperwork. It might be right. might be wrong. could be the inspectors, the way they interpret something. But I have a clock where I'm burning a lot of cash because I got guys and gals standing around. So I would always try to have the inspection of the WPS is done ahead of the time. Um, that's... That's what I really think is the important thing uh, there. And you have to have them where they're available um, for, for, for folks. We, they're not even just the contractors. You need them available for the, uh, for the welder and then uh, your own in-house, the contractor's QC as well, their inspection uh, people, people. I'm not going to go through WPS is qualified by test and then WPS is in production. Pete just covered all this. You got to have all that stuff there, and it has to be um, dug through. I worked for an outfit out of Kansas City, and I spent better part of two years in a in a cube digging through nothing but WPSs and PQRs and welder qualifications and heat treat. What do you call it? Heat treat procedures and whatnot. That's part of the inspection game there, and it's. You know, once you kind of figure out how to review some of this stuff, it's not too bad. And they usually, side note here, if you are the person reviewing it, I always, when I would review them, I would, you know, go through it and review it and then tell them, okay, you aren't in conformance with clause 3174. 
fix this. Nope, you're not. You didn't address this. Fix this. And 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 I type up a little letter, send it back through whatever document control channels there are. Send it back to the you know the the party that generated the the WPS or PQRs and um, have them fix it. And you kind of play this game back and forth. And depending on who you work with, your relationships with them, it it can be either really easy or you know pretty onerous. Thoughts, Pete? Yeah, that um, it it can be uh, a huge time, uh, vacuum of time. Documents you submit, documents they go into a black hole. They come back two months later. If if you're the welding contractor on a project, and depending on how big it is, where where you may be, I would really try to find out who the reviewer is. And sometimes what 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 can be allowed to shortcut or at least speed up the system is providing a bootleg copy before the other submittal ever gets to them because especially if it goes from uh, if you're if you're a sub of a sub of a sub uh, it may it may take a month to get to the owner's engineering f- company to review and then back well if you can find out who that reviewer is you email them a copy and say hey I'm going to submit this uh, next couple days what are your thoughts and if they come back with uh, some major issues, and uh, maybe you can at least address those, so maybe the minor ones can be approved as noted. That's kind of kind of my thoughts on that one, there, Gary. Yeah, and we discussed this, I think, in a previous episode or two. You know, it's back channel stuff. If I'm dealing with like Pete, Pete and I have worked together, and I know he's reviewing my stuff. Okay, Pete, I'm going to send some stuff over. You want to take a look at it? What do you have heartburn with? All right, I'll fix that. No, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail on this, blah, da 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 And it, it kind of goes like that is kind of how the game is played for the most part. But I, I generally try to not use the submittal people when I'm communicating with whoever's reviewing. All the paperwork goes through that channel, but then I'm usually like, give me the phone number of the guy who's going to be reviewing this stuff in his email so I can just send him this stuff. And we'll have a conversation. And what usually would have been a very contentious, drawn-out dogfight turns into, yeah, I'll fix that for you, dude. Is that all you want? All right, no problem. I'll just give you another WPS. I'll renumber it, blah, blah, blah. You good with that? All right, cool. And it saves a lot of issues. So Exactly. And and as you send out, it could, some folks are unfortunately are keyboard warriors, and they use a Jekyll and Hyde from – when they sit down and start typing an email versus in conversation. So it may be an easier thing to have uh, in person is best. Second best is on the phone. Third is by some kind of written communication, but I completely agree, Gary. What do we got? What do we got next? Six, four inspection of welder, welding operator and tack welder qualifications, determination of qualifications, the inspector shall allow welding to be performed only by welders, welding operators, and tack welders who are qualified in conformance with the requirements of Clause 4, or shall ensure that each welder, welding operator, or tack welder has previously demonstrated such qualification under other acceptable supervision and approved by the engineer in conformance with. So basically, this is telling us you got to look at their paperwork and make sure they're able to deposit sound weld metal in there and they've got paperwork to back it up. If they've submitted welding procedures for FluxCore and then all of your welder 
qualifications are for shield and metal arc welding, well, we've got a little a bit of a disconnect here. So we've got to bridge that gap. Thoughts, Pete? No, uh, I completely agree that, it, and this is another one that if you can get these approved uh, before fabrication ever starts, all the better. Um, a, a lot of projects, um, I, I will say, and I've, I've taken the same route, though, is I'm a thousand miles away either uh, approving someone's welders. I have no clue. It's a name on a piece of paper. What in, in that case, what I'll generally do is go through and say these are acceptables based upon can, uh, confirmation of basically who's who, that, and that's going to be done on site. So if you say uh, Bob's welding this stuff up and he's got a good uh, paperwork, well, his ID card or whatever says Jill, we better have a good explanation on how uh, that transpired. So that's uh, the kind of my uh, my take on that is try to get them approved ahead of time. If not, get them done in the very beginning in case there's any issues. So then we got 642 retesting based on quality of work. Well, this is a hot potato here. Oh, yeah. Do I need to read through it or do we just want to go into it? I think let's just go into it. All right. So my basic rundown of this is if you've got a welder, and I, I've played this game in the past, I probably mentioned it in a previous story, but guy was um, not, he was kind of on the tail end of his career and he wasn't doing the kind of work that he should have been. And I just went to his foreman, his foreman, his general foreman, and then kind of the bull general foreman of the job site. And I told him all, hey man, you need to get that guy working on something that's um, that's not code related. He can stay on the job, but if he's if you want to keep him on what he's, you got him working on, I'm going to make him retest and we just don't want to go down that road. That's the inspector. You have that power. You know, you, you've got to be able to demonstrate it. You can't be, you know, Oh, the guy's got a little touch of undercut here, but if he's just putting in like the pigeons hit the beach, just something absolutely atrocious, then you can, you've got to have a leg to stand on. You can't just wield this hammer indiscriminately but you're going to run across cases where it's like good lord what's going on here i got to get this guy to retest this is not this is not suitable for this application and it's not quality so i don't know go for it pete and i i agree um i i've been on both sides of the fence on this one where it's this is subpar work do you want to look at retraining do you want to maybe move them off kind of like in your position where uh, this would be more like, hey, take the individual off of doing vertical and overhead welds and put them on flat and horizontal, uh, something that's a bit easier. But it's uh, it can it can quickly uh, blow up uh, where where I've been more on the uh, when I was on the contractor side for this this issue, it was hey uh, this guy can't put a put a root in, and it was uh, a fight for no I need this person and this why this is the reason why it's okay the one thing though it does it does really suggest is by using a simple test and here that their example here is a fillet weld brake test okay the advantage of a fillet weld brake test is you can do it in the shop you can do it right then and there you grab up two plates weld them together bend them over and see how it's going not a lot of folks are going to fight that 
because there's very little outlay. You're not sending something out to a lab. You're not having to pull heat numbers off of something or, or have mill traceable material. It, it can be a scrap bin test. And I really recommend trying to do that as a uh, as your first uh, your first swing at it. Then uh, kind of what it calls about is a complete requalification, um, which which depending on how the perceived how good they are or how perceived on how bad they are will determine how big of a fight that's going one's going to be. Yeah, and this is got to kind of feel for the situation, and you know, like you say, you have some backup and documentation, and it's like, no, this is this is not good, and all right, I'm going to make him requalify because you guys are. Or, no, nah, let's just do this simple test as fill it. Let's, all right, he's good. I'm satisfied. Or So there's some different ways to go at it. I would suggest diplomacy before you go in great guns a-blazing. So uh, 643, retesting based on qualification expiration. The inspector shall require requalification of any welder, welding operator, or tack welder who has not used the process for which they are qualified for a period exceeding six months. That's pretty easy. If you haven't used stick welding, well, you got to requalify. No matter how good you are at it, you you let it expire. We got to requalify you. So, so, so one uh, one quick thing on that with this whole COVID thing going on, Gary. Um, some uh, some of the major codes have all allowed that uh, that number to increase. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's something uh, relatively new. Uh, so. Uh, look at your ASME or AWS websites uh, for whatever kind of field you're playing in and see if your code's granted a, a longer extension there. But in a non-COVID world, six months. That's right. <laughs> All right. All right. Inspection of work and records and records. You know, 651, site length and location of welds. You got to make sure. Usually I just marked up drawings. How about you, Pete? That, I'd use a highlighter and red, red line them and put the date that I looked at them and mark them with a you know paint pen on the part okay or exactly um, one, one thing and this is also where the whole prefab meeting uh, helps set the stage followed up by periodic meetings throughout the job and I mean these could just be basically uh, talking about the job over coffee or whatever in the morning is scope of examination. So there, there's no in, – unless you have client documents or specifications that require something um, that's spelled out, here it's just suitable intervals. Uh, this suitable could mean different things to different people. So I would have this as a talking point on what all parties kind of think of what a suitable thing is because um, – Unless you have herds of inspectors, you will not be able to watch every weld being made or every fit up uh, at every every portion of it. Are there projects that have an inspector at every station watching every fit up and every pass? It does exist. I've played in that world. Um, it's not exactly f fun all the times, but this is a talking point with everyone. Just make sure everyone's on the same page. And you're right. Red lining drawing, scary as as things are built or as things are completed, uh, is exactly what I have dealt with before. And I think that's pretty much common. I'm not sure else how you'd really do it. Yeah, get yourself a notebook and take some pictures and go from there. Um, scope of examinations, 652. Inspector shall at suitable intervals is their joint protect 
preparation, assembly, practice, welding techniques, performance of each welding, welding operator to ensure that the applicable requirements of the code are met. So that's kind of what Pete was talking about. You know, you're as, as an inspector, you're walking around. Make yourself seen. You shouldn't just be in a hidey hole somewhere and you show up one time. No, you should be out there looking at fit up, talking to the guys. You know, are, are these guys running up? Oh, something's wrong. They're not running on uh, spray. They're running that voltage a little low. Or why are you running the amperage on this um, welding procedure so high or so low? Or where's your preheat here? We're, we're at 20 degrees out here in the middle of North Dakota. What do you got going on here? Why do you, where's the flame? I haven't seen a flame kiss a piece of metal in two days. What's, or, you know what I mean? Where's the pro, where, where, where's even the, the torch at? Yeah. So these are things, you know, as an inspector, I don't know, this, this podcast is kind of turning into a CWI crash course, I guess, yeah. but it is inspection. So um, exactly. And uh, one thing I, I, I want to point out that, um, now this is 2020 and it's the same as in uh, 2015, but perhaps in the future it may be different, uh, but that it's either 653 or 853 extensive examination. And here's worth talking about. You got to look at everything. But what it talks about is, is, is uh, it's the last sentence. Visual inspection for cracks and welds and base metals and other discontinuities shall be added by, aided by a strong light, magnifiers or other such devices as may be found helpful. So this is a, a big point of contention, um, and it's been uh, part of my uh, uh, pain on the code committee for this is, what is a strong light? Um, I'll, I'll, different folks can have different meanings of what a strong light is. Is that a battery? Is that, I mean, is that a, the equivalent of a, of a flashlight with almost dead batteries? Is that out in the sun? This is a, uh, uh, as of right now, there is no number associated with it, as you would find in some other codes that may have a certain uh, lumens or lux requirement. Here is a strong light. So that may or may not change in the future, but that future would be five years away from now. Yeah, and I guess to me that strong light, uh, my interpretation is it isn't a little pen light or you know, you got to throw some light at this. Use your best judgment, I guess, would be my thing. But more is better. Act like a grown-up. Well, exactly. Inspector identification of inspector inspections performed. Inspector shall identify with a distinguishing mark or other recording method all parts and joints that they have inspected or accepted. Any recording methods that have mutually been agreeable shall be used. Die stamping of cyclically... Loaded members without approval of the end engineer shall be prohibited. This is just get it on a paint pen. All right. GP, okay. You know, Gary Pace was here 12-22-1987, okay. Or, you know, just let them know that you've looked at it. it, it, it go, go ahead, ahead Pete. Oh, this is, like this, this is another thing that, especially when die stamping comes into it, some people want something a little more permanent. This is a good prefab item to talk about is how are we going to do this? Uh, there are things that we may not think are sickly loaded. The engineer actually knows they are sickly loaded. So that's a, like I said, it's a talking point. Prefab beings are really good for covering that. Like you said, and it also gets everybody, you know, get in the room, prefab meeting. Hi, I'm da-da-da-da-da. 
I want this. This really bugs the hell out of me. Don't do this. Oh, we can do that. I'd prefer you did this. You know, kind of everybody throws their uh, cards on the table. Um, 655, maintenance of records. The inspector shall keep a record of qualifications of all welders, welding operators, and tack welders, all WPS qualifications, or other tests that are made, and such other information as may be required. Yep, as an inspector, you just became a clerk. Part of the game. Write things yep. down, take pictures, measure things. I don't know. Thoughts, Pete? No, definitely. Uh, especially record everything that you inspect. The the contractor's inspector, well, they got to look at all welds have to be visually inspected. Uh, a third-party person may have to inspect 10% of, of all welds made. So in that case, you would record what you actually looked at, not just what happened in the shop. So there's a, depending on which side of the line you are on, uh, that maintenance of records could be a little different. Yeah, and it just gets back to paperwork. It's a lot of paperwork and documentation and keeping track of it, having a file folder on your computer, downloading all the, you know, writing up your little report on what you did, however, whatever documentation and how you're going to keep it. But um, I'm a big proponent of, you know, having a notebook that I can take out in the field, taking some pictures of, you know, with my cell phone and then, you know, having a set of drawings that I mark up and then you can, you know, kind of consolidate everything on a, you know, a, a digital record, you know, report writing there. But if you think you're getting into this uh, inspection thing and you're not going to become a paperwork guru, I got to say, eh, you're going to, you're going to have to, <laughs> you're going to get a crash course in this and get, get into the paperwork pretty deep. Yes. All right, so that gets us out of Part A. Now we're into Part B, contractor responsibilities. 6-6, six, six, obligations of the contractor. You want to dive into this one, Pete? Sure. Um, so the the first one is the contractor is responsible for, for visual inspection and the, the correction of all deficiencies in materials and workmanship and requirements with this code. Um, it could also be added specifications or whatever is done by the contract. So that's... I think that's pretty self-explanatory, Gary. What do you think? Yeah, there's the contractor. You need to do this, and you need to fix it and make everything right, pretty much. They can't pawn it off. It says it right there. You shall do this. Exactly. Um, uh, inspector requests. So the, the contractor has to comply with requests of the inspector to correct deficiencies in the materials of workmanship as provided in the contract documents. Okay, this is not inspector request for coffee or for donuts uh, or something like that. But this is if there's something wrong with the part and the inspector's like, hey, this is supposed to be five feet long and it's only two. What happened to the other three feet? Well, that's uh, you need to figure out how to comply with that unless there's something else that says that you don't. Um, it goes back to making sure everyone's on the same page with documentation. Uh, this one could also be where we call usually a weld pickup where you build a, a girder or a part or whatever, whatever you're building, whatever widget. And normally the QC, the contractor's personnel would go through it, mark it up, 
add a little more metal here, make this fillet weld bigger, grind this down, whatever. They would go through and mark it up. The craft would go through and uh, fix any deficiencies after that was done. Uh, sometimes they'd have the, the third-party person would go through it. Um, what I always found a little better is have them so go through it both at the same time. So as a welders like hold on i just fixed that now you want me to fix this over here or it it, it eliminates that they go through it once um whether the qc goes through it and marks it up and then the third party goes through and marks it up and then it's all fixed however it is but the, this whole part of the thing is if there's something wrong in the inspector flags that the contractor is supposed to fix it next one's a little different engineering judgment and this is where we have faulty welding and you have when you're removing it you damage the base material what and what do you got to do so this is where the it's basically this is where the contractor has to remove and replace the damaged base metal or otherwise compensate for the deficiency in some manner approved by the engineer so this also could be let's say let's say you're supposed to put everything in here with one inch thick plate and Somehow, you know what? You put in some seven-eighths plate in somewhere. You could cut it out and replace it. But let's say there's a whole lot of different attachments already welded to this. Where, hey, cutting this out would actually be magnitude more work and maybe even be more detrimental to the part than not cutting it out. Okay, but we have loads that exceed whatever a seven-eighths plate can carry. And the engineer comes up with putting on some strong backs or what other bracing to take care of the deficiency. So you can leave the 7 8 plate, but you have to add on some I-beams over here, some C-channel over here, some angle there or whatnot uh, to help account for, uh, for it. So this is where the contractor, if they don't want to take it out and fix it uh, per the original contract, there's another mechanism to walk them down that path. Gets back to we superpowers of the engineer. So they can do a lot of stuff, but you just got to get them involved and let them do their thing, and they'll give you an answer, yes, no, whatever, and you sort it out from there. Correct. Uh, the next one is uh, specified NDT other than visual. It's basically saying that if you have something specified in the contract other than visual, Contractors responsible to make sure it happens. Um, not much else to say about that one. Yeah, because it gets back to the basic premise of this code that visual is the only thing that's required. Everything else gets tacked on in the contracts or the engineer. Or, um, generally, the engineer is going to include it in the contract documents and say, yeah, this, 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 and this needs extra NDE. So um, just getting back to one of the basic premises of this code is that visual is the only thing that's required. Everything else is called out somewhere else and specified. All right. The, the next one, Gary, is one that comes up every now and then, and a lot of folks don't know really how to handle it uh, on, mainly, I'll be honest, it comes down to the money side of it, is non-specified NDT other than visual. So this is, you've did a job to make um, some sort of widget and visual inspection only, no other requirements. You're welding up widgets. You got a piles of widgets made, and let's say it's got a full pen weld on it and half inch thick material on this widget, and 
the owner's like, hey, I want to do RT testing on this. And the contractor can either say, hey, it's going to cost you X. That's it has that or allow it to be tested. Um, so this could either be allowing access to the site or having them pick up the parts and take them somewhere else. Um, and the owner's responsible for all those associated costs. So in, let's say for our RT uh, example, there was spatter on the welds that were okay for visual. It didn't impede it. But now you got to put film right up against the back, and now you got to knock off all the BBs. Well, I guess depending on how bad it is and depending on the relationship, either some contractors uh, will just do it. Other ones you could charge for it because that's preparation of the, the material. And uh, the owner's on the, on the hook for all of these additional costs, uh, I mean, what, whatever they agree to. Now, the exception to that is the last sentence, either like when you're attempting either defraud or gross negligence. So let's take that half-inch groove well that was supposed to be a full pen. And you got some minor issues in it. Okay, that's, you're going to be taking care of that on some cost agreed with the client. But let's say that uh, half-inch weld is really only a partial pen where you just beveled both sides about 16th of an inch or so, and you just put a bead down on your side, and you're basically looking at like uh, 7 sixteenths, 3 eighths amount of weld or, or base metal that's not fused and looks beautiful on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside. That would be gross negligence, and that's done at the contractor's expense. Yeah, that's that's a thing that can get ugly. I've heard all kinds of stories about slugging and, you know, machinists going into a casting, machining into a casting, and they get down to a certain depth, and what they thought was solid metal is nothing but BBs, you know, steel shot in there where the it had been just they'd poured BBs in there, gallons of BBs in there, and then just welded over the top of it. And so you there are things like that or slugging where people throw bolts or rebar or material in there so they don't have to weld out a six inch thick piece of material or a three inch weld or whatever. There's a lot of things that can go sideways out there that and that's what Pete's talking about, defraud or gross nonconformance to this code. So part C, this is where we could get into ugliness. No, this is going to be a grind. Part C, acceptance criteria. Scope. Acceptance criteria for visual and ND inspection of statically and cyclically loaded non-tubular connections are described in part C. The extent of the examination and the acceptance criteria shall be specified in the contract documents in the information furnished to the bidder. So this is telling you up front, okay, before we even get into this job, you're bidding it. You're going to need to do this, 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 and this. You can't come in after the fact and say, oh, this was supposed to be x-rayed and ultrasounded and all this. And the contractor's like, well, hell, I bid it just for visual. There's nothing about anything extra in here. So that's why they throw that in the scope. That's got to be up front. Exactly. Um, the next one is uh, either 6-8 or 8-8, and this is engineer's approval of alternate acceptance criteria. So once we, once we move compl uh, into some of these other uh, test methods, what we can start doing is having energy, uh, excuse me, engineering critical assessments, or ECAs, where this is taking into account 
more than just your generic acceptance criteria in this in this code book. There you can look at, at actual uh, MTRs, the, the actual strength of the materials, and say A36, well, it's 36 KSI yield. Well, but we really have 48 KSI material. Could we be allowed a larger defect because the material is not nearly as weak as we, we are uh, thinking it is? And that would all go into this engineer's approval for alternate acceptance criteria. Um, I haven't seen it done as often in D11. Uh, I've dealt with it on in other worlds in uh, piping and pipelining and uh, vessels. But where I have seen it applied in the D1 world is mainly it's an after the facts. How do we uh, fix some deficiencies? So that's uh, but that's all driven with uh, the engineers heavily involved. Once again, it gets back to the engineers, superpowers and their ability to um, this code gives them a lot of leeway and what they can do and can't do. OK, I've done the calculations, this heat number, this lot number. Yep, it's. It says it's A36, but it's really this. All right, here's my calculations. Nope, this is good. So that's yep. what it's saying. And I guess I just regurgitated what the hell Pete just said. But 6-9, visual inspection. Pete, what do you got there? It's pretty simple. It's one sentence. All welds visually inspected, and you have to meet the criteria in either table 6-1 in the 15 or 8-1 in the 2020, and uh, table 10-15 uh, for two if there's tubulars. And I'm not sure which one that is. In 916 the, for right. um, 2015. All right. It's pretty self-explanatory. All welds have to be visually ins inspected. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll cover these tables uh, independently when we get there. Yeah, we'll do like we always do and just have a hashing through of the tables. Um, 610 is penetrant testing and mag particle testing. Welds that are subject to PT and MT in addition to visual inspection shall be evaluated on the basis of acceptance criteria for visual inspection. Why do we say, why is that, Pete? Can you walk well, us through that? Yes, and um, this, this might be another thing that may change in the future, but basically uh, the code allows mag and uh, dye penetrant, and for acceptance, it's pushing you back to the uh, table 8.1 for visual. What the, and this is this is one of the reasons it's a point of contention with some folks is how do you how do you uh, interpret the result? So if you're using uh, we'll just use diapenetra uh, for example, do you read the bleed? So if you have a little pinhole porosity that somewhere some little indication that you did, you missed visually, and this would this is exactly what these these two processes are for is to bring out things that may or may not seen by visual inspection and all of a sudden that little uh, discontinuity bleeds out all the, all over the place well do you read the bleed or do you wipe it off and uh, look and uh, maybe measure what the indication actually is that uh, the code is not exactly clear on this and it's um, it may get revised in the future to clarify which do you do read the bleed or wipe it off and uh, measure what the actual uh, indication is. What I would personally do, this is my opinion, I would use it to find things that are missed by visual and 
measure the indicate the actual size of the indication to the uh, visual acceptance criteria because otherwise things can get real big real fast when you're either reading the bleed or uh, some kind of weird fuzzy outline uh, when you're using mag particle PT and MT these processes are they're basically a hopped up version of visual inspection like Pete said you're just throwing some dye on there, throw some powder on it, bring out the, the dye that was trapped in the indication, and you make an interpretation on it. But an MT is the same thing, more or less, except you're using, um, you know, magnetic waves to, you know, and throwing some iron powder on there, and it's helping you find a discontinuity there in the, and using magnetic fields to do it. But it's, it, you're looking at it. You're not using a scope like ultrasonic testing. You're not looking at a piece of film it's it's visual it's just an aid to help you get to where you need to go so I don't know if I add, there was any value added on what I threw in there but it's just kind of highlighting that these are both visual visual um, processes 611 non-destructive testing uh, except as provided in 929 for tubulars all NDE methods including equipment requirements and qualifications personnel qualifications and operating methods shall be in conformance with Clause 6, inspection. Acceptance criteria shall be as described in this section. Weld subject NDT shall have been found acceptable by visual inspection in conformance with 6.9. Anything to add there, Pete? No, uh, not really. That's a, it's a mouthful. It's basically uh, telling us that this is how uh, we do our business and which sections to go to. The only one is, if we go down there a little further, the last sentence is acceptance criteria for ASTM A514, 517, A709, grades HPS, 100W steel shall be based on NDT performed not less than 48 hours after the completion of welds. Why do we got to let these ones cook, Pete? Well, because these are really strong welds. These are our 100 KSI materials. Um, I, I would not, even though this is listed as a absolute list and it's kind of it's written the same way in the 2020 version, I would apply the same thought process to any of our. Uh, even, even if you are applying this code to non, uh, let's say, listed base materials, it's our quenched and tempered, really high strength, um, 90, 95. 100, 120 KSI materials. I mean, you could have a non-listed one that is commonly welded, uh, where D11 is thrown at it is 4130. All these we got to worry about is hydrogen cracking. Uh, we could also sometimes called delayed cracking that occurs after the fact. So if we just welded them up, let them cool down, oh, we'll inspect them after lunch. Oh yeah, they're all good. Day later, two days later. They crack. Well, it's got a blessed weld. I mean, it could go out the door. So that's why we have a delay on these is is for uh, for hydrogen cracking on these high strength uh, materials. Yeah, and this is a phenomenon that you know manifests itself in these materials for the most part. You're not gonna generally you're not gonna see this happen in 836 or some of the low low carbon steels. This is for quenched and tempered materials. This is where this manifests itself and where you're going to 
obviously it, this is where it happens because they wrote it into the code. This isn't just a Pete and Gary thing. Oh yeah. By the way, take a look at this. So, uh, radiographic testing, RT. All right. So here's where we're our first dive into, uh, the first volumetric, uh, vol uh, is, is radiographic testing. And we're, we're going to go through these, but we're not going to go super in depth. Um, otherwise, cause I think these almost justify their own, whole episode um, so we're gonna we're gonna go through them but we're not gonna go as the super deep dive as other items um, just because they are so uh, lengthy but um, 8121 or 6121 this is our acceptance criteria for probably the majority of things that are made to this code statically loaded non-tubular connections if you weld an angle plate all that stuff it all kind of it all goes underneath here and this is basically it gives us a figure for limitations uh, of, of the weld size versus discontinuities and we have several rules that we apply rules one is for elongated uh, they can't exceed a, a size in their fair figure eight one uh, we have clearance issues that's also you can find in figure eight one rounded discontinuities uh, you get uh, another sizing uh, in uh, the 2020 version. It's S divided by three and not to exceed a quarter inch. And then we go on to uh, number four. Uh, this is where you start to have where a weld intersection of another weld or a free edge. You got to have uh, there's there's other limitations you got to look through and there's certain cases you got to uh, apply to it as well. And you got isolated uh, discontinuities or clusters of, of rounded indications. It keels on how you uh, measure that. Number six, we got the sum of individual discontinuities. This is where you got a lot of little things and it gets all added up together. It can't be larger than a certain size. And we're like, this rule doesn't apply to one, two, and three above. And then seven is, this is where like in line, uh, discontinuities. This is where you may have, let's say, a constant issue at the center line of the weld or where flux is getting trapped or maybe like um, kind of like a wagon tracks where we got it or it's all isolated in one area and or down it's down the length of the weld. All of this right here is our acceptance criteria. And if you're doing radiographic testing, you shouldn't be going to the code book for everything you should have a procedure that has this information in it but in a user-friendly format uh, sometimes the code is not the best thing to read as a procedure so this acceptance criteria a lot of time is cut and pasted and perhaps more verbiage is added uh, to it to assist the uh, uh, NDT uh, tech in in doing their job uh, moving down to the next one is for uh, cyclically loaded non-tubular connections. This uh, a classical example of this is our uh, either it could be a built-up or a, or a, a rolled-shape bridge girder. Um, well, maybe we don't have bridges in here, but something similar to this where we have we see cyclical movements. Wind towers are uh, uh, can sometimes be uh, uh, sometimes they're considered non-tubular. Uh, just because their plate diameter is so large. Uh, other ones, the, 
the client will say they're tubular. But anytime something moves a whole lot is is where where this would come into play. And this going through has very is similar to what we just did above. However, things start to become smaller, or they refer to um, other tables. Like the first one, instead of going to figure 8.1, it goes to figure 8.2. So there, making sure you're on the right table uh, or figure is is real important. Uh, moving down to uh, uh, cyclically loaded uh, non-tubular connections and compression. Uh, we had tensions first. We had compression next. The uh, the the reason for the splitting up of the two is when you have things in tension, it is more likely for a crack to grow off of a existing indication. So you usually have a tighter tolerance for your tension versus your compression because it's hard for a crack to grow when you have a member in compression. As we see here, it's referencing figure 8.3 versus uh, 8.2 for uh, intention. Okay, so that takes us to ultrasonic testing? Uh, I do believe. That was impressive, Pete. You powered through that one. <laughs> All right, that's a good stopping point for this episode. Pete and I will be back and take another deep dive into the material going forward here in Part C. And we'll see what happens then. Thanks for listening. Hope this podcast was worth listening to. We're going to have more content coming out. Also, if you want to shoot me an email, gpacex at gmail.com. Give me some ideas or maybe there's some questions that you'd like me and Pete or me and Joel to answer in regards to welding, welding codes, filler material, or any other material joining question that you might think we have a shot in hell of answering. Anyways, thanks for listening. Take care. Pace out.